Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. What exactly is going on at the Globe and Mail, at Canada's national newspaper, the paper of record, as some people consider it in Canada? What's been happening, I mean, beyond the usual everyday massacre that is occurring in just about every newspaper in the world? The round after round of budget cuts, the buyouts, all of that is to be expected. I'm not talking about that. I'm not on their case for outsourcing copy editing or tightening their belts or opening an in-house advertorial department and taking reporters off of the news and putting them into that new department. I'm not talking about their move into video or the memos that got sent out that the Globe Mail is going to be really sexy from now on. All of those things that people laughed at that got them heat, that's all to be expected. That is the strategy for survival that they have embarked upon. I'm not questioning any of that. What I'm wondering about are the captains of that strategy. So many of them have jumped ship. Editors at the top of the masthead making very surprising departures from the Globe and Mail. And then the other week, the ousting of the editor-in-chief of John Stackhouse, the man with the plan, the guy who was in charge of the redesign of the Globe and Mail into more of a magazine format, the guy who erected the paywall that was going to take Globe and Mail into the digital age. They fired him. Of course, I don't really know that they fired him. They didn't say it like that. They didn't really say much at all. 
Philip Crawley, the publisher of the Globe and Mail, has not given one interview to the press about this move, which, as far as I can tell, came as a complete shock to everyone. And when I say everyone, I mean the people at the Globe and Mail, because I've been talking with them, and they are dying to talk. They have been chewing my ear off all week about what they think is happening at their paper. Of course, not one of them will go on the record. Who will go on the record? Well, one guy I spoke to, Matthew Ingram, who, of course, uh, is now a GigaOM, but back in the day was a pioneer of the Globe and Mail's digital platform. He remembers the globeandmail.com being part of the first wave of newspapers to take online seriously. And he lamented to me how far they've fallen. I mean, looking at their paywall that has been called the most complicated newspaper paywall out there, uh, there were estimates that they lost 40% of their web traffic as soon as they put it up. And, and what Matthew told me is he doesn't know what's happening with the Globe's finances. Nobody does. It's a private company. But they don't fire the editor-in-chief when things are going well. So all of that suggests that this whole new strategy has been a failure, but what then is the new strategy? Nobody seems to know. And the new editor-in-chief, David Walmsley, he hasn't said. The only thing that everybody is unanimous about is fear. Nobody at the Globe is feeling too secure at this particular moment. And beyond fear for their own jobs, a couple people expressed to me fear about the newspaper survival itself. It's been suggested to me that it's possible that in a few years there won't be a Globe and Mail. It's hard to say much more about that, especially when no one's really willing to say anything. So today we're going to take a step back and try to gain some kind of perspective on the paper as a whole. And to do that, I'm going to be joined by Anne Rauhala. Anne worked at the Globe and Mail for 16 years. She was a copy editor, an assignment editor, a beat reporter, a foreign editor, John Stackhouse's boss. She's been a featured columnist. She also worked at the CBC and the Toronto Star. And these days, she's a professor of journalism at Ryerson University. She's got some terrific insights into all this. Hold on for it. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does 
BetterHelp. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. FreshBooks.com is my sponsor. And if you listen to the show, you know that I think it's the easiest way to invoice your clients if you are a contractor or a freelancer, if you're self-employed like me. It also happens to be a wonderful way for small businesses to do their accounting and their billing. If you're still doing your billing in Microsoft Word or Excel, please stop that. Or if you're tired of QuickBooks, check out FreshBooks.com and you can try it out for free. Tell them who sent you. Go to FreshBooks.com. I'm really concerned about the Globe and Mail. I think that it's lost its way. I think that the surprising changes that happened last week, I hope, mark a realization that the paper has lost its way. I think it's losing its relevance. And I fear it used to be essential to read the Globe and Mail. If you were a person who cared about what was going on in Canada, whether your interest was in politics or business or the arts, it was fairly important and required to read the Globe and Mail. And I don't think it's a requirement anymore. Canada's national newspaper. This is our paper of record, supposedly. That's the brand. It does not seem to have that level of authority and is this just a symptom of what everybody is experiencing? There's just less money and there's just going to be less content and less? Well, it's, it, is one of, it is a symptom of what everybody is experiencing. But I think the Globe and Mail chose a particular path that has led to this point, which is not a very comfortable point. I mean, I think obviously uh, the so-called legacy news organizations have been struggling for the last 15 years to figure out what to do and how to do it, how to survive, how do they remain relevant, all of those questions that... You know, we have endless conferences and panel discussions about the future of journalism. So, yes, the Globe and Mail is facing that context and struggling like everybody else. However, they made some choices about what to do. You know, when I think about what kind of an analogy to draw, I think not so much about the sinking ship, which is the one everybody likes to use at the Globe and Mail, uh, but more the, let's say, a club, a social club. Mm-hmm. And the Globe and Mail Social Club was always a club for the people who um, had uh, leather patches on their elbows and smoked a pipe and knew the right people and probably had relatives who were born in somewhere on the British Isles or at the very least somewhere in Northern Europe. The Canadian elite. The Canadian elite, absolutely. And... The Globe and Mail at at several points in the past couple of decades seemed to decide that it was better to make it the membership in its club smaller and smaller. And I was certainly there for some of that. We we were getting constant messages about how what really mattered was the caliber of our readers. They were mopes, um, you know, professional um I can't even remember what MOPE stands for, but professional, educated, mover and shaker kind of readers. Uh We wanted the MOPEs. It didn't matter that we didn't have that many readers or we didn't have as many readers as the star. What mattered was that our readers were better readers. Okay, and that was an idea that you could sell a little bit back when the Globe and Mail was really important in the 80s and 90s. The Toronto Star, on the other hand, decided that its social club 
was not going to restrict its membership. It was going to isolate what it did well and expand its membership. When you look at the Globe and the Star as a reader today, it's fairly clear which path worked out well. <laughs> The star still has news in it. Yes, exactly. The star still has news in it. And even though, like everybody else, I'm checking Twitter and Facebook and, you know, looking at Reddit or whatever, but I'm still occasionally reading things that surprise me in the Toronto Star. I don't feel like I'm ever reading anything that surprises me in the Globe and Mail. I don't feel that it's reporting what's important. For me, personally, as a citizen... As a former Globe and Mail editor, as a journalism professor who cares about the business, and as a political observer, if not entirely a political animal, the turning point was the Globe and Mail's failure to cover the G20 fiasco in downtown Toronto a couple of years ago. Uh -huh. Failure to cover it adequately and give it its due importance that what it looked like was... The Globe and Mail had decided, the editors of the Globe and Mail decided it was more important to not antagonize the large and small C conservative readership by raising questions about the loss of civil liberties that we endured that weekend. And instead just sort of say, oh, well, you know, <clears throat> let's turn the page and let's go, let's go and see what the price of oil is this week. Can what? we just shuffle along to the ROB and see what's happening? The what? ROB is a report on business. What has Ian Brown seen on the mountain this week? Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't want to go up that mountain. Anyway. This is a story that the G20, the, the younger readers who are not reading The Globe, this is a story about Toronto becoming a police state for a number of days. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, well, there were so many asks, there were so many layers in which it was, an, uh, it was unbelievable that you can probably still hear my indignation in my voice now. It's what, almost four years later, I'm still shocked. The Globe and Mail, the, the fine old newspaper, didn't cover the, what, the second largest mass arrest in Canadian history. You know, it used to be, I don't know, nobody ever asked me this question, but it used to be talked about in the Globe and Mail newsroom that the old managing editor, Clark Davey, one of the first questions he would ask new summer students would be, what can you tell me about the uh, Winnipeg general strike? or something like that, right? In other words, you were supposed to know something about the Canadian political context and yeah. about Canadian political history. You were supposed to care about such niceties as civil liberties. And for the Globe to fail to jump on it with with the full force that it was that it could have and should have done really disappointed me and it is no reflection on the intelligence and the grit and the talent that still exists in that newsroom because despite the mass exodus last year there's still a lot of those characteristics it was a failure back in 2010 to understand how truly outrageous it was that our city became an armed camp. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I could certainly understand, you know, what's happened to media and that there's so many people crowding the space. Why, if you had a brand like the Globe and Mail, you'd want to take the high road and be the prestige brand. But a newspaper can't be more prestigious than the news. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, John Stackhouse was brought on to be a newsman, to be a reporter's reporter and to usher in the digital age. That's what he was here to do. So... What happened? Why? How did that not work out? Or what, what's your read on? And, and I think we can say, you know, to the question that they have yet to answer, did he jump or was he pushed? 
I mean, it, it seems clear to me, but what's your thought? Well, generally, editors-in-chief at The Globe and Mail and managing editors do not jump. They are pushed. Yeah. Um, and some are better at looking at looking like they were jumping, but they are generally pushed, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword. I remember that phrase popping into mind the first time when I was a relatively young editor there watching watching a managing editor leaving through the back door. I watched several managing editors and editors-in-chief get pushed out. What happened there? And you were, we should hmm. say, at one time, John Stackhouse's boss. So you I was have... a foreign editor at the Globe and Mail. Uh-huh. And in fact, uh, yes, I was his supervisor for a while. You know what? He's a serious journalist, a lovely writer, um, a decent guy, for sure. I really don't like to kick somebody when he's down. He is not somebody who... Um, comes across as a charismatic leader. He is not somebody who, with a a light or warm touch with other people, and I think he might inspire fear or anxiety among his uh, reporters. He does. He's not somebody who inspires love and loyalty. You know, I, I've had a number of conversations this week with with people at the Globe or who were at the Globe, and to the question, "What kind of an editor is John Stackhouse?" Uh, everyone has unanimously praised him as a fine writer and reporter. Yes, what I witnessed with him as a as a colleague and in other contexts is that he he doesn't cut people a lot of slack. He doesn't cut himself much slack, but he really doesn't cut other people very much slack. And that can be a real liability when you're a leader. And I do know of circumstances, the details of which I really don't want to share, but I know of circumstances where he attempted to intervene in other people's work where I thought it was inappropriate and not in the finest traditions of journalistic independence. Is he a micromanager? I heard that he was a micromanager. It wouldn't surprise me. He didn't micromanage me. But it wouldn't surprise me because he is somebody who's extremely detail-oriented and I think sometimes loses sight of the big picture. To his digital strategy, and they have put resources into their app and they have put resources into building a paywall. I think it's been called the most complicated paywall that any newspaper has. I wonder if these kind of progressive moves haven't actually buttressed this idea of this prestigious – I mean, when you put up a paywall and we know that nobody under like 45 will ever sign up for a paywall, you are casting your lot. You're going to shake down your well, yeah. your existing subscriber base at the expense of the influence of – you know, that this is not how people share news. They don't want to hit that paywall. Well, precisely. And to me, it it evokes again this idea that we're part of an exclusive club. And if you are, if you, if you can uh, check yes to the following 20 boxes, then you can join our club, whether it's money or entering a paywall or, I'm sorry, just to be a little frivolous here. Have you noticed how obsessed the Globe and Mail is with running? For example, do you, you know, you pick up the Globe and Mail about it seems like the only kind of lifestyle content they care about is running, which makes me laugh yeah. because it was it's like so you have to be this high octane, perfectionistic, elitist person, ideally male, but not necessarily preferably of Anglo-Saxon 
origin and private school, and you went to Queens or Western or McGill, and then it's okay for you to read the Globe and Mail. Yeah, well, oh, I'm, and better if you're over forty. Yeah, right. So you know what? If you keep if you keep making you know talking about I'm jumping metaphors here, but you know they talk about news or legacy organizations circling their wagons. In this case, they've circled the wagons so small that there there's just nothing there but a a burnt out campfire in the center. Yeah. And this isn't something from 20 or 30 years ago. This is something Philip Crawley just a few months ago said, our target reader makes $100,000 or more a year. Right. And when I, uh, again, uh, I should almost be a target Globe and Mail reader. Since I worked there, I, you know, I am, I should be a Globe and Mail reader and I am not. I let my subscription lapse a year or two ago because I was so distressed by by what I was not seeing in the paper. Yeah. Um, I still miss a couple of outstanding writers. I mean, easy to, you know, I miss John Doyle's humor. I miss Jeff York's reporting and, you know, Andre Picard and Marcus G's acute analysis of what's going on. But actually, I can just go read that handful of the the stuff by those handful of people if I want to anytime. So why would I have to why do I have to endure the whole paper in this nagging that I should be a long distance runner? <laughs> <laughs> a friend said, you know, with the paywall you hit ten articles and and, and and that's it. And he said, That's fine. That's exactly that's what I need. Uh, we've had Thank that you. conversation. Yes, <laughs> I've had that conversation. Ten's more than enough. Things. But there is so much talent there and, and not to take a swipe uh, you know, uh, it might have sounded that way earlier with Ian Brown. He's yeah. an excellent writer, but yes, it doesn't absolutely. seem like they're really drawing his best work or demanding it necessarily. Plus, I mean, there have been other factors, too, within the Globe and Mail newsroom, um, most notably the failure of the Globe's upper management to deal effectively and meaningfully with the plagiarism accusations. With Peggy Um, Wente. Yeah, exactly. uh, You know, a a year or two ago. Now, that that may seem irrelevant or small potatoes to some people who are Globe readers, but I know people across the industry because of what I do now. And that conversation about why the Globe did not act more meaningfully about those accusations, that was pretty much all a lot of people were talking about for a very long time. It did not only damage the Globe's reputation, it damaged the reputation of I think journalists across the board. There were a lot of people who were really concerned about that. Well, and if your brand is prestige and authority, you know. Yes, yes, precisely. I mean, all in all, it appeared to be handled very poorly mm-hmm. at at the level of Stackhouse and up. That's what it looked like to me. And, and internally to morale, I, you know, I spoke to a number of younger journalists there who knew that they would never have survived a whiff of. Uh, yes, I'm. You know, absolutely. You know, I'm glad you reminded me of that. What that did, what that did to the Globe and Mail morale was remarkable. It was, it was killing. It was, mm-hmm. I think, unnerving to people to see how someone could do something that anyone else would be fired for. That was the phrase. You know, the first the first ten words out of everybody's mouth at the cocktail parties was, "If anyone else had done that, they would be toast." Yeah, and and you get to the situation now where in an, in a landscape where there are no media jobs, people are quitting 
Uh, and some of the best people are quitting. You know, as a not so young but younger reader, uh, when I saw Carl Wilson leave the Globe and Mail, you know, you've got a writer there who is, um, you know, internationally respected as a, as a music writer and critic. And I'm like, oh, they don't care about me. They don't, you know, that was one reason why I still read the Globe. So, you know, he left and Steve Lauderante left. And, you know, it, there was this, as you say, the, the metaphor of the sinking ship. This is supposed to be the top game in town. If you've got a job with the Globe and Mail, you're not supposed to be looking for other options. Are we getting into an environment here where it's more dire than it appears? And I'm thinking specifically of the very high likelihood that there's going to be a strike or a lockout this summer. Hmm. It's an interesting question. I do know – I mean I almost I almost grew up at the Globe. I was just in my 20s when I started and – I have lived through enough of those negotiations to know that the paranoia runs fairly deep on all sides and it rattles people. People get a lot more alarmed. I could be proven wrong, but I I wouldn't – I don't think people who are in that newsroom now on either management or you, the union side necessarily have a great deal of perspective on what's actually going on mm-hmm. because is because it is often the nature of the globe and the nature of this kind of labor um, negotiation that people start to lose perspective yeah I'll tell you what I've been hearing mm-hmm. um, I've been hearing that they're going to be cutting in order to fit into that new building in order to keep the globe in the black which apparently the Thompson family demands so they mm-hmm. they will not allow in this time of transition to dip into a loss in order to to restructure the company uh they're going to go from around 700 people to around 450 they're going to basically keep writers and senior editors and slash everything in the middle and here I'll take you know maybe a, a devil's advocate position Maybe they're doing the right thing. Maybe this is, you know, to this long conversation, can a legacy news organization pivot and become a digital first organization? Can a dinosaur give birth to a mammal? If you were building a news organization from the ground up, you would not include layers and layers of editors and sub-editors and copy editors. You would outsource everything you can and you would have people like working from home, filing, 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 and you'd keep it as light as you can at those expensive top layers. Is this the right move if that, in fact, is what's going on? Good question. I don't know if it is the right move. I, If there are still 700 people working for the Globe and Mail, if there are, as, as you assert, then I am pretty confident that five or 600 of them are not working in news. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they aren't. I mean, that newsroom has contracted and contracted so much. I mean, I know how small it was when I left quite some time ago. There can't be very much fat to cut. And yes, I would imagine that it's going to be a very tough round of negotiations. And yes, people should be concerned. After all, there was a massive buyout only a year ago. They lost an, they lost an entire generation of journalistic expertise. And sadly, it really shows. Yeah. I mean, the beat reporting, what's happened to beat reporting in the Globe newsroom, for example, really shows. I mean, 
Beat reporters are the backbone of a lot of journalism. Because Why? Because beat reporters know what the heck they're talking about. They have the sources. They know the stories. They can tell you what's important before it happens because they've been following things. I mean, talk about Carl Wilson. He had a particular beat in arts and entertainment and you trusted him and liked his work and felt disappointed when he left because you knew that he knew what he was talking about. But the Globe invited many people to leave a year ago. Unfortunately, many of the people who left took with them that level of expertise that made the Globe and Mail able to put the most important story on the front page before anybody else had it. And they are not leading the news anymore. Yeah. I guess I'm avoiding your question. Is it the best thing to do? It is possible that to pare themselves down to their essential task, it may be necessary for survival. And possibly to break the union in the process. Yeah, I. that, that would be, I mean, I suppose anything is possible. Perhaps I'm just being naive, but I have seen this level of speculation, paranoia among those people for decades. Yeah. So I don't tend to go to the worst case scenario right away. We are speculating and, and this is wild speculation and I'm, I'm forced to speculate because they're not talking right. and, and yeah. Philip Crawley isn't talking about this stuff. And you know, I think he did last time when it was the changeover from, from Greenspawn to Stackhouse, but he's not this time. It's, it's strange for an organization of journalists supposedly dedicated to informing the public to be so secretive and the level of fear and you know, perhaps paranoia, as you suggest, in the people who want to talk my ear off about what's going on in there but won't talk on this show. What can you tell me about the culture at the Globe and Mail that will help me understand this like mafia-like omerta code (laughs) of silence where we must not speak about the Globe and Mail. Yeah, and I'm speaking to you because I feel it's partly kind of my civic duty as a journalism prof. You know, even I hesitate to... I thank you for it. (laughs) I hesitate to hold forth about it. The culture of the the Globe newsroom um, has always been a a kind of a chilly place, I have to say that. I mean, we warn when we have sent over over the years, I've sent Ryerson Journalism interns there, and I, I kind of warn them. I, we we actually kind of warn them that it can be a very unfriendly and unhelpful place and very quiet and not exactly a barrel full of fun. Yeah, um, it's not the bustling newsroom. Of, it is of, not uh, the bustling newsroom at all. Although he- heck, there were we had plenty of bustle at various times in the eighties and nineties. I hear that it's kind of a morose place generally right now. There are people. There are many people who wish they could have taken the buyout a year ago who couldn't afford to for whatever their personal circumstances were. And I know there are people who felt the kind of who felt disappointed about what was what's going on at the top, the same kind of disappointment I felt, whether it's dissatisfaction with how Peggy Wente's stuff was handled or dissatisfaction about, say, just G20, as an example. Jan Wong beforehand. And, oh, yeah, we haven't even talked about Jan Wong. Yeah, Jan Wong beforehand. There was, there's been a lot of dismay about what's, what has gone on. And I think, too, it invites being extremely careful and keeping your, keeping your head down. And Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know why that old, that sort of Chinese proverb about um, strangling the chickens to scare the monkeys it seems it for some reason is popping up in my mind the the idea that you strangle a few chickens every once in a while and the monkeys the monkeys being too smart to ever become editor in chief 
quietly go back. To was to was Jan Wong a, a strangle? Was 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 she? A, her, I think she was. Was she nailed to the door as a, as a warning? She was a strangled chicken, I yeah. guess, to some degree. I mean, don't push back. Certainly was the message. Yeah. That anyone would draw from that one, and Jan Wong was a big star. She you was know? a big star. She wrote incredibly electric copy. You never got the sense that she was in that echelon of the prestigious globe columnists. Those, those, you know, she, she did stuff that was daring and was called stunt journalism at the time. And I, I couldn't help but wonder to see how they protected Margaret Wente, but, but threw Jan Wong under the bus if there isn't an, an inner circle of the inner circle that she didn't quite get into. Well, I think she probably wasn't in a particular kind of inner circle, but I don't even think that that was, I don't even think that was so much the main issue. Sometimes I wonder about the degree to which uh, Margaret Margaret Wente's focus um, in her column is so deeply reassuring to the elite. It isn't just that she was a manager at within the Globe and Mail, whereas Jan never really was. And may I say, was a every this is widely known, was a profoundly unpopular manager. Uh-huh. But the content of what Margaret Wente does, she almost uniformly holds up the status quo and comforts the status quo. And, you know, Comforts the comforts the comfortable instead of the afflicted. It's literally conservative. It, it seems like each column is some people are making a fuss about something, but it's no big deal, and you need, you didn't bother yourself with it. That's pretty much it. Yeah, you've actually summarized that really well. You needn't bother with it. And what I find as a reader, when she writes about anything, any so, some little part of the universe that I actually care a lot about and have read a great deal about. I feel very disappointed, mostly because I do not see much evidence of reporting. You know, writing yeah. a column is not, not should not be about spouting your opinion. It should actually be based to some degree on some evidence that you've gathered through reporting or reading or talking to a wide variety of people who know more than you do. I don't know. I, I feel like there's... Um a hopeless internal conflict there because the cracks are showing in that prestige elite package they're trying to uh, provide. They have to get on the internet and fight it out with everybody else. And when I hit my paywall of the Globe and Mail, they're trying to entice me to subscribe with with video content of advice columns about oral sex and celebrities' <laughs> nude scenes. Maybe I've got a different, you know, I don't get the running uh, content. Maybe they've got some different cookie on my computer to describe me and what might get me to get my credit card out. But I'm not going to subscribe to the Globe and Mail for, you know, celebrity erotic content. Well, you know? you know, and if they were the only game in town, I might be forced to read it. But the truth is, I have the Star and the Post and, God help them, even the Sun to to look at for a different perspective. I mean, to some degree, I'm better informed by reading the Sun because then the Sun is telling me what – what that part of the what Rob Ford supporters are thinking? Yeah, you know, and, sure, and you can learn context, something. Yeah, in this context, it's important for me to know what Rob Ford supporters are thinking. Yeah, it's not a paper that just tells you that everything's okay in your in your bubble. It's it's telling you something from outside. I, yeah, you know, it, it's not the CBC where you can have a certain tenor of conversation because it's the public broadcaster and they and they sort of owe us something. The Globe can do what it wants. 
on the one hand. On the other, what a shame. It's, it's an institution. It's being handed down from generation to generation. And for some elite to uh, make it their own clubhouse to the detriment of its possibly its own survival is a shame. I think it's very sad. And I, I feel as though I've gone through the phases of grief with the globe. I used to be very angry about what was happening or not happening there. And well, and I've gone through denial, I've gone through all parts of it. And eventually, I got to the point where I just didn't care very much anymore because they had changed the project that I knew and knew and loved as a idealistic young journalist. They've changed it so much that it's hard to it's hard to care yeah. about about what happens there anymore. When I see when I see the way Jan Wong was handled when I see how Margaret Wendy wasn't handled, when I see important, critical stories um, insufficiently covered and tough questions not asked. And then I look back, I think about some of the people that I worked with at the Globe and Mail who I still think are you know, fighting the good fight, but doing so elsewhere, you know, Andrew Coyne mm-hmm. or Susan Delacourt or whoever, in all kinds of other news organizations, it makes me realize what, what's what been lost. So I guess I am actually grieving. I said I'm past <laughs> it, but I, I am not past it. And we pick it up occasionally for free. And, you know, I look at it and I feel generally still disappointed and irritated. Um and then I'll come across, I don't know, a John Doyle column or a brilliant piece of foreign reporting. Um, and there's an area where the Globe still, you know, is is carrying its banner proudly. Yeah, and, and, that's, John, feel, yeah. and that's John Stackhouse, who, who uh, I think made sure that, I mean, those are very expensive, those uh, the foreign bureaus. And but they, uh, he understood them and they mattered to him. Yeah. But, you know, the, the thing is, a good editor and a good leader, a good manager is able to understand even those things that don't matter so much to them. You have to understand that that some of your desired readers actually don't have a nanny and may need to use childcare, mm-hmm. even if the Conservative Party of Canada doesn't think it's a good idea. The reality is that a substantial portion of people who are reading the Globe and Mail probably did have children in childcare. But the vision was we were all living in North Toronto with a nanny. I'll ask you to make one final speculation, and it's a privately held company, and we don't know a lot about their bottom line or about what motivates the company. But I have heard that the Thompson family... That, that their philosophy about the globe is not so different than that inner circle privilege prestige mentality that it is the legacy of the of the of the Thompson family is prized that it's a trophy on the mantelpiece and that it is more important that it just sort of stick around and maintain its imprimatur and, and is taken seriously that that might be more important than that it 
be a vibrant and robust and rigorous news outlet in Canada. And this is all stuff that I'm hearing secondhand, but you were in the building for 16 years and, and you know, we can only speculate as to what's in the hearts and minds of, of David Thompson, but w- what what have you heard? What do you know? That's a really sad idea that better to keep the old corpse on life support forever and say that it is still alive than to take a close look at what it could be and how it could operate and thrive. On one hand, I am reassured to think that the upper echelon of ownership values the globe and thinks that survival is important. I wonder if they realize how much damage they have done to the paper by being so out of touch and by lacking the sort of the chaos, the creative disruption of having a large group of different voices, because that is what made the globe pretty magical, at least a magical place to work. Mm-hmm. The diversity of opinion. Obviously, survival is an issue for all legacy media. Well, whatever violence lies ahead, and it looks like it could be significant, let's hope that it is a move towards fighting that good fight and a fight for survival and not survival of the idea of the Globe and Mail or the prestige of the Globe and Mail, but the actual Globe and Mail. I think the optimists uh, the optimists who are left are clinging very much to um, their high opinion of the new editor in chief, whom we hear is a capable journalist and all around likable guy. All that good stuff you hear about David Walmsley, but you don't hear that this is a guy of the digital generation. No, that's true. You don't. Well, that is your Canada Land show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can always email me at jesse at jessebrown.ca. I read everything you send. I write back when I can. I'm also on Twitter at jessebrown. The website is at canadalandshow.com. I will have another podcast for you on Monday. If you like this show, recommend it. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.